Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is the show that brings you in-depth conversations with the creators of great songs, from the ones you know and love to the ones you should know. Be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit us at songcraftshow.com. You're listening to Tiesto's Grammy-winning remix of John Legend's All of Me, a song co-written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Toby Gad. Finding early success with international pop acts such as Millie Vanilli, the German-born hitmaker went on to write and produce a string of international number one singles, including Beyonce's If I Were a Boy, Selena Gomez's A Year Without Rain, and Nicole Scherzinger's Don't Hold Your Breath. He has twice been the recipient of the prestigious ASCAP Song of the Year Award, first in 2008 for Fergie's Big Girls Don't Cry, and again in 2015 for John Legend's All of Me. Toby's contributions to officially certified gold and platinum album releases alone represent sales of more than 73 million units worldwide. The impressive list of pop superstars who've recorded his songs include Ricky Martin, Miley Cyrus, Donna Summer, Brandy, Jordan Sparks, Robin Thicke, Alicia Keys, Demi Lovato, Jasmine Sullivan, Jesse J, One Direction, Kelly Clarkson, Carly Rae Jepsen, Leona Lewis, and Madonna. Well, Scott, before we get into our conversation with Toby Gad, we actually have a contest that we've got to wrap up here. That's right. Uh, a couple episodes back, we had Shelly Pikin as a guest on the show, and she has recently released her book, Confessions of a Serial Songwriter. So um, thank you to everyone who went to our website at songcraftshow.com and uh, connected with us through the contact form there to to enter the contest. So the idea is we are giving away two copies of Confessions of a Serial Songwriter. Um, we had we had said we were going to draw names out of a hat, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, that's what we said. But I, uh, as you can see, this is not a hat. No, it's a metal bowl. <laughs> this is my uh, this is my popcorn bowl. Yeah, uh, right here. So there might be a little salt on some of these entries, but uh, I put all the names here in the bowl. And Paul, I'm going to have you, in the interest of fairness, so it's clear that I didn't rig this. Yep. Uh, have you draw one out? Fair enough. And if anybody needs us, you know, for the sake of veracity, we can use this metal bowl as a hat. Um, but, okay, here is the first name. It looks like our lucky winner is Seymour Butts. <laughs> who, who's the wise guy who sent in Seymour Butts? I, I have to admit, I put Seymour Butts in there, and I'm quite pleased. I am quite pleased that you drew that one. You know, what's funny is Seymour Butts uh, is an author himself, actually. Is he? Now he wrote that classic book, Under the Bleachers. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Anyone? <laughs> okay, for real. Let's uh, do this. Let's do this. All right. So the first winner of Confessions of a Serial Songwriter is... All right. For real. That, that was a drum roll. Uh, <laughs> Jessica Stewart. All right. Jessica Stewart, congratulations. Uh, we will contact you via email yep. and uh, get your information so we can ship that book well out done. to you. Excellent. We got, we got one more, right? We got one more. Yeah, you want to reach in here yeah. and, uh, and and get the next one. All right. This winner number two is, no drum roll this time, <laughs> Brent Baxter. All right. Excellent. So Brent and Jessica, thank you guys very much for, uh, for entering. Everyone else, sorry you didn't win this time, but I'm sure we will have uh, another giveaway coming up on a future episode of Songcraft. Yeah, let's just make sure everyone we interview has written a book. <laughs> That's a good idea. I don't think Toby Gad has written a book, but he's written a lot of great songs. Yeah, I don't think Toby Gad would have time to write a book <laughs> with the amount of hits that that guy has worked on. 
Yeah, we, we're talking about John Legend, All of Me, Fergie, Big Girls Don't Cry, uh, Beyonce, If I Were a Boy. I mean, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. The guy, uh, he is busy and has some some great stories about, you know, uh, being so busy that uh, he can't even work with Katy Perry and some of the biggest stars yeah. in the world. So um, really cool conversation. Yeah, let's get to it. Yep. Toby, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, let's go back to the very beginning. You were born in Munich, Germany, to parents who played in a Dixieland band called the Jazz Kids. And I understand that your dad was a clarinetist in the music world, but uh, was an engineer and an aircraft test pilot by day, um, while your mom was a piano player um, who left the family when you were still a kid to pursue studies in, in psychology, and eventually uh, she became a spiritual and alternative healer in London. Um, so I'm curious, you obviously inherited your musical gifts from both of your parents, but in terms of your creative spirit, do you more identify with kind of the engineer analyst uh, side of your dad or more kind of the spiritualist side of your mom? Uh, I think visually I'm taking more after my mom and while my brother's taking more after my dad. And uh, as far as flying goes, my, my brother is way more into airplanes than me. He still would like to have a helicopter. <laughs> and for me, flying was, was not that interesting, but I liked designing aircraft. My granddad, he was the, he, it was his company and they built around 2,000 airplanes and wow. he, every evening he was on the drawing board dreaming up new airplanes and wow. that was really exciting. So I love, I love building things and designing things. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, the spiritual side of my mom, I'm sure that comes in very handy as far as like the kind of songs I write are sometimes, um, like really authentic stories or moments of the life of the artists I work with. And yeah. it, sometimes it feels more like a therapy session, the writing. So that definitely <laughs> helps. Yeah, wow. yeah. Well, what do you recall about the very first song you ever wrote? The very first song, I was maybe six years old or seven years old. I was on the bicycle coming back from school in the depth of the winter and plowing through probably six inches of snow with the bicycle and... <laughs> And there was a little bit of sunshine, and I wrote a song uh, for for the sun sun to warm up my hands. Because nice. <laughs> I was well. freezing. <laughs> Did it work? But I'm not going to sing it now. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the earliest actual recording of a Toby Gad song that I could find um, is I Don't Want to Go from the 1986 album Contact by the artist Fancy. Tell us how you first began getting your songs recorded by other artists. Uh, when I was maybe seven or eight years old, my brother and me, we formed a little group, and we wrote our own songs and performed them in the intermissions of my parents' Dixieland jazz wow, band gig. that's great. Cool. And started making money by, by... When my parents went back on stage after we did our set, we would go through the audience and collect money for us. <laughs> <laughs> right. That was a great source of income for us. So <laughs> we, we did that on a regular basis. And then... Um, I think when I was 10 or, 10 or 11, we played on a few radio and TV shows in Germany. Um, and then, I guess when I was 11 or 12, there was this guy, Gunther Mende, who wrote The Power of Love for mm, Jennifer yeah. Rush. Yeah. 
And he invited us to a studio, and we recorded a few songs and uh, tried to get a record deal, but that didn't work out. But that was some of the earlier recordings. And then after that, a guy called Tony Mon, who was a successful producer back then in Germany, um, but didn't work that much anymore, gave us the keys to his studio. And he was mostly on vacation, so we most of the time we had his studio. And it had wow. one of these old Fairlight uh, keyboards, yeah. which were really cool. So we started making our record there. Yeah, and and then um, from there on, there were a few years where we just joined a lot of bands in in the area in Munich and locally made some noise. And uh, eventually, we heard Frank Farian was looking for songs for Milli Vanilli. Right. And we submitted uh, a few songs, and he he loved the songs, so he flew us up to Frankfurt to to record them in his studio. And by then, Girl, You Know It's True was a big number one hit, right, so right. everything went very fast from there on. After we had recorded the songs, a week or two later, the songs were already in the stores, number one um, selling album. And <laughs> So we had three songs on that big album. Wow. One of those songs, Can't You Feel My Love, that was the B-side uh, to the U.S. single, Girl, I'm Gonna Miss You, and I, I actually had that single, so I remember hearing that song. <laughs> Hooking up with Frank, that was a that was a big deal, uh, I'm sure, to a young pop songwriter and, and budding producer like yourself. Yeah, yeah, he definitely was a good mentor, and we we saw that we could, uh, like with writing songs, you could make so much money. Um, and then my brother and me, after the Milli Vanilli thing, we did an album on Polydor and toured a little bit with it. It wasn't successful, but George Clinton from P-Funk, um, came to Munich and was a guest critic and critiqued our album and loved it and oh, wow. invited my brother and me up on stage on his tour and we wow. we played with him and he jammed with us and then he said he, we should come to America to to uh, ride with him there and I really had no idea back then I, I should have done it but we, we didn't get we didn't know how important that could have been wow. we didn't do yeah. it yeah amazing so you and Frank Farian teamed up to co-produce the first album by singer Jacqueline Nimmerin, with whom you would go on to write for uh, numerous film and TV projects over the next 10 years, including Mission of Love, which was the title song to the film The NeverEnding Story 3. Uh, talk a little bit about um, Jacqueline and, and that era. She was my um, girlfriend for many years, for nine years, and okay. we did a lot of records together. Uh, she... Uh, was uh, from Mauritius, the island of Mauritius, and okay. Creole. Yeah, yeah. And had family in London, and I, I think we did two albums together, and did also, there was a period in my life where I did film scoring, and mm -hmm. we did three years, I think, of film scoring, which um, we got a lot of offers, and I got really worn out by it, and at some point um, we decided that it, it's not... I decided it's not what I want to do. I want to do pop songs. I want to do mm. three-minute songs. And I'm like putting all my heart and soul into into a movie that may or may not happen. It was really not for me. So I've sort of gotten that dream of doing film scoring out of my system right. earlier on. Yeah. Some people nowadays still say, okay, one day I'm going to do film scoring. And I don't want to do that ever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> already right. tried that. <laughs> right. Well, I know that uh, around 2001, you decided to relocate to New York and set up your Strawberry Bee studios in, in Midtown Manhattan. Um, and you obviously moving to New York was... Um, 
an opportunity to start getting into uh, some more of those uh, U.S. Um, cuts and, and activity in, in the U.S. market. Um, and you had these number one singles in the Netherlands at that time, uh, Star Makers, Damn, I Think I Love You, and uh, Saita's Happy. Um, and you were working on kind of breaking into the U.S. market, and, and the first sort of breakthrough you had was Jackie Velasquez's Unspoken, which spent about six months in the top 20 on the Billboard Christian chart. If we all take a piece, you will come, I believe, as we face the unknown. God heals us when we're broken. He's there, use your voice, speak for him, make a choice, none of us are alone. Don't leave your heart unspoken. What caught my eye about that song is, is that it was co-written with Madeline Stone and Orrin Hatch, who is a, a senator, a uh, U.S. senator. Um, how did that come about? After I moved to New York, I, I was broke pretty much and had a couple of months on instant soup and one bagel a day. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It, it was wow. a very, very hard time, and I knew I didn't want to turn around and go back, but... Um, like two years into it, um, I got lucky. Madeline Stone, she was a, one of my earlier collaborators in New York, and we wrote, and she, her friend was Senator Orrin Hatch. I've never met him, hmm. huh. and I'm, I'm also not a Republican, even though right. I think everyone should get along. But <laughs> right. um, yeah. So he was a friend of Madeline who collaborated with Madeline on the idea, and then I also collaborated on the idea. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, I started the idea with, I think I started the idea with Madeline based on what, I think he sent in some concept ideas. Huh. It's, it's so long ago, I can barely remember. Yeah, but, right. but yeah, that was that song and then Will Afford, those two were the first records that I had released in America about two years after I moved there. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because, uh, you know, Will Afford's Toast to Men hit number 11 on the Billboard Hot Dance single chart in 2004. It was in the film Barbershop 2. <laughs> I know that there were some opportunities that working on that project kind of opened up for you that, that benefited you uh, in the years ahead. Yeah, that was a funny collaboration. Um, it was still at that time when I was desperately ringing on, uh, banging on everyone's door. And, and at Lava Records, um, I, I went everywhere and said, this is me and these are my songs and would you listen to it? And, and at Lava Records, um, I had just had a meeting there and then like a week later, the A&R called me and said, Willa Ford just had a session fell through. Would you be able to work with her in one hour from now? Wow. And then he, he sent her over. I had two hours to, to do something, and we wrote a song. And sort of I connected with Willa on that level, and uh, uh, Willa was managed by David Sonnenberg, and that's how David Sonnenberg got to know me and then eventually became my manager. Mm -hmm. And that... Uh, for 11 years, I worked with David Sonnenberg, and wow. he's an amazing, amazing visionary and businessman, and we got along really great. We parted ways recently because he loves New York too much, and I love L.A. too much now. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> but I still speak highly of him, and great guy. Yeah. So yeah. That, that through Willa Ford, I, I found David Sonnenberg, so yeah. that was also another milestone in my career then. And, and 
after you know you've got this this new management relationship uh, in 2005 we start seeing a major acceleration in, in your success you you co-wrote and produced Casey Brown's instigator album uh, including the title track which went to the top 10 on the Billboard dance charts you co-wrote and produced three songs on the Veronica's debut album which was a massive double platinum success in Australia um, you teamed up with the artist Melanie and will I am to write the song drop it on me from Ricky Martin's top 10 album life so there's all these all all these things are happening, um, but I want to ask you about uh, another project from that year, which is the song No Strings by Lola, which spent four months on the Billboard dance chart, uh, reached the number two spot. And Lola is an artist that you discovered, uh, developed, produced. And I'm curious, in a general sense, are songwriting and production completely intertwined as one process for you? Or do you think of songwriting and production as separate but complementary disciplines? Well, um, it, sometimes, it, it varies. There are sessions where um, we write the song and we, and we write it maybe in two, three hours and then we record it in maybe two, three hours after that. And then that recording sometimes has such an urgency and such authenticity that can't be oft, sometimes can't be repeated later mm. on because like if they're very personal songs, then uh, yeah. right after writing, we totally are in that in that mode of of that story, and then the performers, the singers, re- really feel those words. And when yeah. they sing them for the first time, there's sometimes a magic that cannot be recreated. So yeah. as far as a vocal production goes, I'm a believer in first time magic. As far as uh, the track goes, quite um, sometimes those tr- early tracks also have this first time magic, but sometimes. Um, other DJs or other producers um, give it a shot and and come out with better results sometimes. And then, yeah. um, but then quite often they still use the original vocal files. So yeah. I, as far as vocals go, I think that is the closer the vocal recording is to the writing process. If the song's written with the artist, then uh, the better the results are. Ah, interesting. Well, one of your best-known songs is Fergie's Big Girls Don't Cry, which was your first number one single in the U.S., and it was number one in nine other countries. I mean, just a huge song. earned a Grammy nomination for that song, and it won ASCAP Song of the Year. Um, tell us how that song came together. That was Jim Malitaro put me in the room with her, and um, Jim let me have the, that uh, there was a back room in, at the Sony Publishing office mm-hmm. that I could use as my studio, so frequently I, I flew out to L.A. I was living in New York at, at the time, but I came out to L.A. Uh, many, many weeks and was able to work in that Sony studio. And one day, Jim brought Fergie in and I got to spend uh, half a day with her and she was uh, um, she had just broken up with her boyfriend but also had just gotten over uh, over an addiction and wow. really felt like at that point in time she had to focus on her career and so the breakup wasn't uh, because of love it was really about because she needed to focus and center herself and and get back on track with mm-hmm. her career yeah 
And so that's the tragedy in in Biko's Don't Cry, that she loves the guy, but she has to break up with him. And um, I, I think that reflects really well in the song. That's why it resonates, I feel. Um, the writing was very easy, very effortless, because she, she was in tears when she came in, and <laughs> it was wow. a very emotional session. Wow. And, and I sort of said, let's just try to put this, uh, like write him a letter and, and put these emotions on, on paper. And, and then the first verse was there very quickly. And um, I had the guitar out and we got a melody to it. And then we sort of figured out where the chorus could go. And um, it went really fast, like not even three hours. And the wow. song was written. And then we recorded wow. it in another two hours or so. You know, that's something that people don't always realize that, you know, there's such an emotional component sometimes to writing. I mean, here you're talking about your first writing session with her and she comes in, you know, heavy with these emotions. That's mm-hmm. a... That's a really kind of delicate spot to be in as a as a writer. Mm-hmm, that's true. Yeah, yeah, and and then it's really important to to listen to the artists and and try to put their feelings into a song and yeah. and not try like have no egos in the room. Just try to make the best out of that emotion. Sort of capture that lightning in a bottle. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, yeah. following the success with Fergie, you worked with Kiki Palmer um, as well as with Miley Cyrus on some Hannah Montana projects, um, then returned to working with the Veronicas, producing and co-writing nine songs on their second album, including Untouched. like Big Girls Don't Cry, Untouched was another hugely successful platinum-selling single. Um, and also like Big Girls Don't Cry, it's a song that you co-wrote um, with the artist. Um, so kind of as we've been touching on, talk a little bit about how you approach the writing process when you're working with an artist, um, just in terms of of what you do uh, to kind of get to know them or, or bounce around ideas that you think might draw something out of that person that will be unique or reflect their personality as an artist? Well, with the Veronicas, on the second album, um, that that was actually a, a very, very fast process. We had... Um, I was in New York and they were in Australia, but then we both met in Los Angeles and I had two weeks to prepare for that session. So I prepared a lot, a lot of tracks and ideas and they sent me uh, lists of songs that they like from other artists. They love the muse. They loved a lot of artists um, that were a little ed- edgier. And right. I got inspired by that and did a lot of song starts where um, we uh, just put on a hook or a feeling or a guitar riff or something. And on Untouched, I had a lot of ideas already and um, wrote most of it actually in, in, in the hotel room in, in the Cadillac Hotel in Venice Beach. And then uh, brought it into the session, and the girls loved the idea. And then yeah. we we finished it together, and it, it came out really great. Some songs with the Veronicas we wrote from scratch, like In Another Life was one of the songs on the album that we did from scratch, and very much about um, a breakup that um, one of them had with their boyfriend. Yeah, yeah. A, a theme. <laughs> yeah, so I, I mean, there's various approaches, approaches to it. Uh, I do, on, on sessions that are meaningful to me, I do spend a lot of time preparing and I mm. do try to come up with ideas of my own that um, 
like after studying the artist's taste and where they are and and how they are like that that I think could resonate with them. Sure. But then I'm, I think I always try to instead of bringing my idea in first, I always try to first see what the artist is up to that day and if they have something more urgent that they want to sing about. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, in 2008, you worked with Donna Summer, producing and co-writing three songs on her Top 20 Crayons album, including the song Fame, which hit number two on Billboard's Hot Dance Club songs chart. But it was another project that year which brought you yet another platinum-selling single when Beyonce had a massive hit with If I Were a Boy. If That song hit number one in nine countries, and, and I'm, I'm noticing that the number one is a, a number we're seeing a lot in, in your catalog, but um, that album won a Grammy for Best Contemporary R&B Album. Tell us about the origin of that song and how Beyonce ended up recording it. Well, it's an artist called B.C. Jean. She, um, I, I connected with her through social media, and uh, we re- recorded nine songs that we wrote together, B.C. Mm. Jean and me. And If Our Boy was, um, I think, the last song or one of the last songs and after that um, we tried to get a deal for her and it uh, I played the songs to a lot of people and and somehow that didn't materialize and mm-hmm. then um, I felt like those songs are so amazing we should we should if they don't come out on, on BC Jean's record we should try to get those songs placed somewhere else maybe and I had a session coming up with Beyonce which was months and months in the making. It took a lot of time to mm. coordinate for me and her and Beyonce to get in the room together. So when we finally got in the room together, I played Beyonce a few songs that I had um, written before, before we started or wanted to start writing. And then when Beyonce heard If I Were a Boy, she said, play that again. And then I played it again. And then she said, Toby, you won't believe this, but I want to record this song right now. Wow. <laughs> and then um, we recorded it. And two hours later, it was finished. And... Um, Recording Beyonce was great. She is such a power woman and knows, like, such a hard worker. Yeah. I think the thing about superstars is, besides talent, is really they work everyone else to death. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Takes a lot of work to get to the top. Man. Yeah, really good worker. And um, then that was pretty much the story as far as I'm concerned. And then um, I think her people mixed the song in the end. But well, yeah. I recorded Beyonce's vocal. Wow. Well, that's a, that's a pretty good day when when you get together and, you know, going to sit down and do some hard work and then find out that maybe your part of the work was done already. Yeah, yeah. Well, there were certainly a lot of other major highlights in 2008, um, including the two songs that you co-wrote and produced on Natasha Bedingfield's top five album, Pocket Full of Sunshine, um, as well as the two songs that you co-wrote and produced for Brandy's top 20 album, Human. And so you're having major success, but around this time is when you decided to relocate from New York to Los Angeles in 2009, um, and you mentioned loving Los Angeles. What is it that you love so much about L.A. that made you want to make that change? Well, I lived nine years in New York City, and 
those nine years, every year I probably uh, traveled 10 or 12 times to Los Angeles to work in L.A. because there's just more talent. Mm. Mm. And uh, the whole infrastructure is there. Yeah. Um, while the business side is in New York, but all the creative people, most of them are in L.A. LA. Mm. But that time when I worked with Natasha, it was funny, the Natasha songs we actually also recorded on a laptop in a hotel room and she sang it into a palm tree because <laughs> we had a <laughs> we didn't have a vocal booth so we used the palm tree and, and propped up the microphone inside the palm tree and wow. <laughs> sang into the palm tree. <laughs> and then uh, with with Brandy, I must say that was my one celebrity crush. I, I oh, wow. Brandy such a beautiful woman and and we had four days together. That was incredible. Yeah. yeah. Um, but around that time, I must also say, and I've never said this before. Um, I, Katy Perry and me were, were texting back and forth and we said we're going to do a session and then uh, I had to work with Brandy and Natasha and then I put Katy on the back burner again and moved her around like for the second or third time wow. and she got really upset <laughs> and I think up, up to almost this day she did not want to work with me anymore and I think it had to do with this wow. <laughs> right. Wow. and so you got to be careful who you say no to and coming from <laughs> Germany Germans always like to say no instead of not saying anything <laughs> so uh, I went to Katy Perry's party though just a few weeks ago and had a nice conversation with her again and I still have hope that one day right. Katy and me will write a hit together but so far <laughs> that's a tough balance to strike you know that's amazing that's amazing um well, it's hard to imagine how you have enough hours in the day to work on all the projects that you've been involved in. In 2009 alone, you contributed to Ashley Tisdale's Guilty Pleasure album, Jordan Sparks's Top 10 Battlefield album, Selena Gomez's Top 10 debut, uh, Robin Thicke's Sex Therapy album, which hit the top 10, Alicia Keys' The Element of Freedom, which hit number two on the Billboard chart, um, Demi Lovato's chart-topping debut release, and, and that's just that's just the highlights. Um, so someone with your success Success has no shortage of opportunities, but kind of piggybacking on on that last comment you made about saying no and saying yes. Um, how do you decide what projects to get involved in as a writer and producer um, versus what things to pass on? Because there there has to be more opportunities than you have the ability to to take on. Well, I think the more successful I became, the more I was trying to just work on. But I was doing two things. The one thing is you try to work only on, on artists where you know there's a push from the label behind them hmm. and you know there's a record coming out, there's a record being made and you can be part of that. Yeah. Um, but then I also started a label and uh, developed five artists that um, four of them we got signed to major labels through my label and um, got records. Some of them were released, but not, none of that really... Um, sparked fire and went all the way. So I felt through the label thing, I had wasted a lot of energy and I didn't do that. Like that's, that was the finding talent that was not signed where, the, where there was no album being made and then making a whole album myself and then shopping it to, to a major label. That, that process is so, it takes so much work and yeah. it's such a long shot. So I, I haven't done that after, afterwards. Um, for the last three years or so, I have not touched any any talent where there wasn't a, a major label yeah, behind yes. it. And then actually, um, I'm just um, I took a year off last year and uh, pretty much, and then uh, started again just a few two three months ago in the studio. And 
now I'm actually open to again. It's one of my goals to hopefully find a new talent and yeah. take them all the way. So yeah. I'm, I'm seeing that differently now again. Yeah, interesting. Um, well, as we move into the 2010s, there, there's more Selena Gomez with the top 40 pop single, A Year Without Rain. Uh, there's more Hannah Montana, more Jasmine Sullivan. Um, but we also see quite a bit of success happening in the UK for you at that point. Uh, you had three songs on James Morrison's album, The Awakening, which was a number one UK hit. Uh, Jesse J's Who You Are was a top 10 UK single. JLS had a number one UK hit with Love You More. And Nicole Scherzinger hit number one in the UK with a major single, don't hold your breath. As a writer and producer, you have always had an international perspective, but talk about how changes in the music industry in recent years have reinforced the importance of really having a global perspective as opposed to focusing only on just the U.S. market, for example? Well, the funny thing is I read in, in the Billboard magazine two weeks ago that for the last seven months there has not been an American artist in the Hot 100 at, at the number one spot. Wow, huh. interesting. So, I mean, that sort of answers this. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You go where the work is. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's incredible. Yeah, that is incredible. Well, your song Skyscraper was a top 10 hit for Demi Lovato in 2011. You can take everything I have. You can break everything I have. Like a made of glass. Like a made of paper. And go on and try to to hear a little bit about that song. This was Lindy Robbins, one of my uh, longtime collaborators who I love dearly, and um, Curly, who was at the time signed to L.A. Reid, mm-hmm. um, an artist from Estonia. And so the three of us, we wrote for Curly's project, and we wrote three songs. And Skyscraper was one of them, and uh, we wrote it on the piano. And Lindy came with the idea of, of writing a song with the title Skyscraper. And at first I thought she was crazy. Like, how can you write a song about skyscrapers? But <laughs> she um, has uh, a genius in, in putting weird words into a great context and oh. put emotion into it. So I, I attribute a lot of Skyscraper to Lindy. She was amazing on that one. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure the idea felt like a better idea once it hit top 10. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it, Actually, then I must also say this song was an album track for Jordan Sparks, and uh, we had it recorded. It was Jeff Fenster, and and it, it actually did not make the album as an album track. And wow. then um, Nick Groff from Cobalt Publishing kept believing in the song and kept pitching it, and he pitched it to to Hollywood Records. And John Lind at Hollywood Records, he loved the song, and he fought for the song, and he fought for the idea of having a slow ballad as a first single for the album, which is rare. Yeah, Nowadays, yeah. people always want to go for the up-tempo song. So yeah. there's a few people involved in the success of this song that made it work. Cool. Well, one of the biggest acts of the last decade is One Direction. And, you know, you worked with them on their number one albums, Up All Night and Take Me Home. 
you know, when you're working with stars who are incredibly famous, incredibly busy, and they're being pulled in every direction, what are some of the techniques that you use to kind of help shut out some of the craziness and, and help that person you're working with focus on the moment, the creative process? Just really to, to make the moment precious and to make the most out of it. And the good songs, they, they don't take long to write. So yeah. you really just got to have one of these artists for two, three hours and and hopefully have a great time with them and hopefully like make, have that excitement carry all the way through the writing process. Yeah. I would imagine that a big part of that is preparation. Like you mentioned earlier, researching an artist, kind of knowing what what their vibe is, what they want to say, and, and so that when that person comes in, you can get right down to the task at hand. Yeah, last weekend I had two two days with Nelly, mm. and I prepared a, pretty much a whole week for that session, and then um, I came in with one idea which uh, which they, they loved and he loved, and and then, so we wrote that this evening, and then we wrote another one that that night. It was a session that went till three thirty at night. Wow, geez. and um, so the the preparation does pay off. It's, but it's hard to sit here by myself and and yeah. imagine the artist is there and imagine what could be the best idea, and then pull some ideas out of nothing. I'm much better working in real time with artists and. And sort of when they babble, try to <laughs> turn that into something that's <laughs> right. much easier and yeah. faster. And it takes me a long time to try to get ideas by myself. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, one of the challenges for us in talking to somebody with your success level is there are so many artists and so many songs that we could try to mention. We have to try to, you know, get through, you know, all these names. There's, you know, we haven't even talked about Kobe Calais, Kelly Clarkson, Cher Lloyd, Big Time Rush, Carly Rae Jepsen. But we need to talk about another one of your major hits, John Legend's All of Me, which was co-written by you and John. Cause all of me loves all of you Love your curves and all your edges All your perfect imperfections Give your all to me I'll give my all to you You're mine Even when I lose, I'm winning Cause I give you all of me if, if this were a, a children's show, I would say at the end of it, it was sponsored by the number one, because <laughs> that song also went to number one in 11 countries, spent six weeks at number one in the U.S., and became another ASCAP song of the year for you. So, tell us the story behind that one. That was the third time I. Uh, that's the third song I wrote with John Legend. Um, he was madly in love with his fiance, and mm. and uh, I had written songs with John that we wrote from scratch. Some of them based on my ideas, and that time was his idea. He came in the uh, came to my studio and and said he wants to write a song for Chrissy, and already had the idea of all of me loves all of you and already had the first few bars of the chorus. Mm. So it was super easy to write this song because the moment you heard those first few bars, you, I, I just knew where it had to go and threw, threw a lot of ideas at him and, and he had ideas and we traded places at the piano and like two, three hours later, the thing was finished wow. and really fast. Yeah, it's cool to hear a song like that that's so stripped down uh, just to the to the basics. You know, it's uh, it's... It's all about that melody and and the emotion of it, um, and I think one of the things that is is really admirable about your work is that you can 
do something that's very stripped down and, and, you know, very kind of organic. And then you can do these amazing layered productions and both ways you're able to maintain that kind of uh, emotion and to be able to, um, to, to get the song across. Um, I, you know, in, in the last couple of years, you've worked with some, some big names such as Cody Simpson, Hillary Duff, Daughtry, Scott Stapp, Ruben Studdard, Sean Paul, Leona Lewis, Prince Royce, Tori Kelly. Um, but you know, there are, there are big names and then there are icons and you had the opportunity to work with an icon, uh, with Madonna and uh, her most recent album, Rebel Heart, um, from 2015, uh, including the top 40 single, Living for Love, which she memorably performed at the Grammy ceremony last year. to hear a little bit just about the experience that you had of writing and producing and working in the studio with Madonna and her team. Mm-hmm. It was a long process. So Neil Jacobson from um, Interscope, he said, he asked me one day if I wanted to do a writing camp for Madonna. And I said, I usually don't do camps if the artist is not in the room. And um, But then he still talked me into it. And I did a few days at the Interscope studios, um, writing with various writers, trying to churn out some ideas that might hopefully find the ears of Madonna. And after that camp was finished, I didn't hear anything for a long time. And then eventually Neil said, uh, do you want to come to New York and do a writing camp with Madonna? And I said, I'm not going because I'm, sh- I'm sure she's not going to be there. <laughs> and then uh, he kept emailing everyone, my management, my publishers, everyone said, convince Toby to go to New York because she will be there. Right. And so uh, eventually I-, I believed them and went there. And then she actually showed up, and um, it was Mozilla, me, and S1, who is a track producer from, from I think, Texas. And um, the first week with Madonna was hard. We had uh, a week together, and she was very testing yeah. in, a, in a way of, like, calling me the, what was it that she called me, the, the I don't know, the German... German dictator, Nazi, or so, oh, whatever. <laughs> because because I had ideas when she was in the vocal booth. I told her you could maybe do this better here. This could sound like that. And I don't think she liked people that she didn't trust yet to tell her what to do. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so so she, she, if you don't know her well, she uh, demoralizes. She really makes everyone <laughs> feel like she's the uber boss. Wow. <laughs> but then after a little while, she uh, we started warming up and... All in all, we spent almost five weeks together in the studio. She kept calling me back. When she had the sessions with Diplo and with Pharrell, she, she called me back and said, Toby, won't you come back because nothing's getting finished and I know you like to finish things, so we need you back. Huh. So, of course, I flew back. And then um, the sessions were nice. She always would come around four in the afternoon and then uh, work a little bit. And then her kids would come in and the whole session would turn a bit into a family thing. And then eventually the kids would leave again and she would stay in the studio. She's very hands-on. She's uh, a hard worker, very, very hard worker still right. today. So all in all, we wrote, I think, 13 songs and I think eight made the record here and one more overseas. So nine songs out of 13, that was pretty good. Yeah. 
And she, um, after that, she asked me if I wanted to perform in her band for the Grammys. And I really thought about it. Might be, a, And she asked me if I would go on tour with her wow. as a keyboard player or, or something. And I thought the, the family aspect of it could be fun because she has four kids and I have two daughters. And um, it could have been a great trip around the world. But then I, the more I thought about it, the more I think I, I cannot do repetition. If I do the same thing twice... I. Like, I'm wired as a songwriter. I need to play, play everything always different every time. And mm. to to rehearse two weeks for one Grammy show and then to rehearse four months for one world tour. And the goal of the rehearsal is that I will do the same exact thing every night. Right. That completely freaked me out. And then I, wow. I said, no, I can't do it. I love you. But And then, actually, just uh, two weeks ago, she asked if I would come to, to New Zealand to help her with something. And... So she and she invited me to her birthdays. We went to one of her birthdays in Cannes in France. She's been really, really sweet and one of the most bonding superstars where I feel, wow, this is this is like family, this is incredible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like she warmed up to you for sure. <laughs> oh, so sweet. Really. I, yeah. I can only talk highly of her and her I mean her work work ethic is unmatched by anybody. I don't know anyone who works as hard as Madonna. And then um, just such an all-round talent with her tour. I, I saw her tour then in, at the, I think at the Staples Center in um, L.A. Yeah. And she performed, I think, seven out of the eight, nine songs we did. So that wow. turnaround, that you do a record and then you see a, a, a world-class performance of your songs from Madonna on stage, that was just unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, huge moment, yeah. Unbelievable. Her performances are like Cirque du Soleil level, like really amazingly thought through, very elaborate performances with all kinds of techniques and dancers, and like really brilliant. Yeah, I was actually at the Grammy show uh, in 2015 when she performed, and uh, what was captured on television didn't quite capture what it was to see it in person i mean it really was like a, a real spectacle it was it was pretty amazing yeah yeah i really um, so much respect for her well there are so many great projects we could discuss but i want to to wrap it up here with with one last question and, and ask you about uh love song to the earth a charity single you wrote with john shanks natasha beddingfield and, and sean paul that features an incredible all-star lineup including paul mccartney fergie john bon jovi cheryl crow colby calais leona lewis and and, and on and on and on and so many uh, guests on that. that came about and how you managed to put together a recording with that many different artists so this song was a bit of a process and uh, maybe I start with saying my wife she used to work as a simultaneous interpreter in the security council at the United Nations interpreting oh, wow. all the presidents wow. so I always felt connected to the United Nations and um, I have worked with the United Nations on several occasions um, I, I did a song for the um, World Refugee Day once that we performed in Washington and I did a song for a Girl Up campaign with Victoria Justice for the United Nations right. that empowers uh, young females. And so uh, at one of the dinners where the United Nations invited me, uh, Danielle Zaptowski from the Media Outreach 
arm of the United Nations, asked me if I would be interested in writing something that talks about global warming, but and which was a real challenge. I mean, I've always cared about global warming, and um, I think America should care about it a lot more than than it, people do right now. Yeah, for sure. And uh, so. I, I love the challenge, and it was a real challenge to write a song that doesn't tell us what to do. But so we we figured, and that was partly Danielle's idea to to write the song more as as a tribute to what we have, what's at stake, instead of the doomsday scenario. <laughs> right. Um, and so that stuck with me for a while, and then in the Madonna sessions, I actually asked Madonna if she would want to write it with me, and. For a while, she was interested, and Diplo was interested, and then it sort of fizzled out, and we never got to finish anything right. uh, for that. But the idea stuck with me, and then at some point, I just called Natasha and, and John Shang, who's a good friend of mine, and said, are you both interested in, in trying this out? And then the three of us jammed the song on the piano, and, um, and Natasha had the idea of, of love song to the earth, and um, mm. that resonated with us, and we we had a great time writing it. And then soon after, Natasha and me performed the song um, in New York at the Climate, Climate Rally 2014, end of the year. Right. Um, there was a big summit with over 100 presidents and heads wow. of state. <laughs> and we, we performed it in front of them in the in the security council. Jeez, wow. no pressure. The general assembly. <laughs> so that was really uh, special for me and wow, for Natasha. Yeah. It was really special. And then after that performance, um, Jerry Cope, who is an activist, um, came into play, and he said uh, we we should try and release this as a record. And he sort of made the connections to iTunes and um, helped. Um, get in other artists as well and uh, we all reached out John reached out and Natasha reached out I reached out to everyone I knew and then over the course of 2015 everyone I worked with I asked them do you want to sing on the song and um, uh, Jerry Cope connected the song to Friends of the Earth which is a good organization and um, Friends of the Earth made the connection to Paul McCartney and um, then so Paul recorded on the song as well wow amazing (laughs) <laughs> uh, and, and then I must say, Peter Paterno's law office, they, um, uh, I asked them and they said, yes, they would work for free on, on this project. And imagine clearing 16 A-list artists <laughs> with labels that are for profit to Jeez. do something for free. That was almost yeah. impossible. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Well, you have uh, certainly pulled off the near impossible many times uh, over the course of your career, and I feel like this is just, uh, we've just skimmed the surface of, of so many of your, your great accomplishments. And so we want to thank you, Toby, for spending some time with us today and, and sharing some of the, the stories from your life and career. It's very inspirational and, uh, and, and really great to talk to you. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for listening. To find out more about our guests, stream episodes, get a sneak peek at upcoming interviews, or to contact us with your feedback, visit songcraftshow.com. While you're there, sign up for our mailing list so you can stay up to date with everything that's happening in the Songcraft universe. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please like our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash songcraftshow. And if you enjoy what we're doing here at Songcraft, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review on iTunes, which truly helps potential listeners discover these conversations. And we look forward to getting together with you again for the next episode of Songcraft. Ooh.